0: Hi, I'm Stacey Shoemaker-Rowan, Editor-in-Chief of Hospitality Design Magazine with HD's What I've Learned Podcast. My guest today, Rachel Gutter, was destined for a career focused on the betterment of the world around her. She grew up with hippie parents who emphasized environmental consciousness. Her dad worked for the EPA, and her mom was a teacher. Waste, she says, was not tolerated. But they also had an eye for design, lovingly restoring their Victorian home outside of Washington, D.C., this set the stage for her career at the USGBC, where she was integral to pioneering the green building movement at the time when the space was still emerging. Now, as president of the International Well Building Institute, she is implementing standards that embody a holistic well being approach. As the world continues to grapple with our COVID 19 reality, Gutter's work is more important than ever. If we continue to find the intersection of purpose and profit in our own lives, she says, then we will not only be much happier as individuals, but the planet and society as a whole will benefit as well. In fact, IWBI is currently recruiting members for the new Well Advisory for Hotels and Resorts. Feedback from this advisory will be critical to advancing the Well Health Safety Rating for Facility Operations and Management and how it can address the specific needs of this important market sector. If you are interested in becoming a member of the advisory, please send an email to hospitality at wellcertified.com. Today's podcast is sponsored by Global Allies. I'm here with Adam from Global Allies. Adam, do you have any advice for hoteliers or other listeners of the podcast? Yes. Buy more chairs. Global Allies. They sell chairs. Hi, I'm here with Rachel of IWBI. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Um, Not many people know, but or maybe people know now, but um, Emerald, our parent company, has partnered with the International Well-Building Institute and um, Rachel and her team to start working on a concept called the Well Conference. So that's really exciting for us. It is. um, And it's been
1: really neat to explore the dimensions of that partnership and requiring us to be a little bit more creative and think outside of the box. But... In a way, that was already our mandate for a well conference is to really revision what a conference looks like in this day and age and the notion that you could leave a conference healthier than when you arrived. So I feel like we already had that as our challenge and as our mandate. And now we just have some additional parameters to consider.
0: (laughs) So speaking of which, how are you dealing amidst COVID-19 and our new fun reality that we're all dealing with?
1: You know, all things considered, pretty okay. Um, I think it's incredibly challenging, but also incredibly rewarding to be leading an organization in this very moment, especially an organization that has so much to offer in this moment. And I think what we keep coming back to on the team at IWBI is just how much of a gift it feels like right now to be able to be contributing um, and f- focusing our work on the one thing that's taking up all of the time and attention in our heads anyway. Right. You know, So to take the fears and the anxieties that everyone is really struggling with right now, but then translating that into action and into solutions just feels really energizing and, and really powerful. You know, In my personal life, I'm healthy and safe and the people that I love are healthy and safe for now as well. So I count my blessings there every day. But it really does feel like a little bit of mourning everything, yeah. you know. Like on some days I just feel so sad and I feel a lot of, you know, despair and fear. And then on other days I feel so hopeful and so inspired by so many things that I'm seeing. And I think, you know, part of surviving and even thriving in this moment is about riding that wave. It's about giving in to the ups and downs of all of this. Because I think if we're not experiencing them, we're not really connecting to the lessons that COVID nineteen has to teach us.
0: Right. No, that's such a good point. And I feel like IWBI and all the work that you're doing will have such a great role in, you know, how do we uh, in the design and the building community come out of come out of this on the other side and, you know, in a yeah in a more uh, effective way um, and thoughtful. I mean, I way. think
1: never, never again does anybody question whether the building mm-hmm. or whether the space that you're in has an impact on your health and well-being. That mm-hmm. in and of itself is a profound leap for us all to be making right now in terms of the mar- market transformation mission that IWBI is in service to.
0: Exactly. So let's go back before we go forward and delve more <laughs> into this. So um, where did you grow up? And growing up was were you in a house that, you know, uh, the environment or, you know, social responsibility or, you know, all these things that, you know, define what you're doing and what your, um, career has, uh, embraced. Um, were, were those, were, were those part of your childhood, a, a part of growing up? Well, I'll dimensionalize
1: that and and say that, um, my, the, the 10 years uh, of my career before I came to IWBI I was acting as the founding director of the Center for Green Schools at the U.S. Green Building Council, and it turns out that I'm born of an environmental lawyer who got <laughs> his start at the EPA right around the time when EPA was was started back in the '70s, and uh, and a, and a teacher um, of an, an educator in the public school system. So. I liked to joke that my green apple didn't fall far from the tree. Um, (laughs) My parents hate waste. Um, They were, you know, both raised by, um, uh, you know, blue collar, um, you know, uh, parents who grew up during the Depression. You know, so every piece of Foil was saved you know my my father couldn't stand the idea of a piece of chicken being left on one of our plates um, and so I, I definitely think that there was um, an an environmental approach to my upbringing, but I'm not sure we ever labeled it that way. I think it was mostly um, just the 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 ethos that my parents carried forward um, it wasn't such a such a a popular thing to self-declare as an environmentalist but when I look back i you know, I think about a lot of those different dimensions about all of the things that I was growing with my mother in the garden, you know, or about all of the DIY nation stuff that was going on inside of our house. Um, But just generally, my parents commitment to not living uh, within a footprint that is, um, that's outsized, you know, I think they're really cognizant of that. And that was born and bred into my sister and I.
0: That's amazing. They were ahead of their time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> also recovering
1: hippies or something like that, you know, yeah. so like kind of native from that perspective too, you know, do unto the earth as you would want the earth to do to you, which is a nice motto these days. Exactly.
0: And speaking of the built environment, was there any sort of design or love of architecture growing up as well or early memories of that?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I shudder to think, um, about some of my earliest memories of the DIY projects in my house, specifically um, being three years old and um, my parents refinishing the floors. And I don't think we knew what we know now about particulate matter. Um, so I shudder to think about whatever that did to my lungs. But um, no, my, my, um, my parents were constantly having a design project. They, they purchased a dilapidated Victorian house. Uh, outside of D.C. and restored it lovingly and painstakingly bit by bit. So some of my um, favorite memories with my mom um, are designing and redesigning my bedrooms. Um, As I grew up as a child, we would spend hours at G Street Fabric picking out the perfect material for the pillowcases she was going to sew, you know, or hours at the uh, at the the uh, wallpaper store, just like paging through, you know, the borders and the yeah. wallpapers, because this was like a full on 80s bedroom that we're talking about. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I shared, I grew up sharing that love of design, specifically interiors with my mom, you know, helping her to stencil uh, all of the borders in our Victorian oh, no. house and, and stuff like that. Um, but looking back, I also feel like I almost have always had a kind of allergy to bad design like it, it physically makes me feel bad when I'm sitting in a space that's like overly cluttered or has too much stimuli. And so from a very young age, my room has been like my sacred space now my home, my sacred space. And so even when I went to college, I would like spend the first like 48 hours. I wouldn't sleep. I wouldn't go out. I would do floor to floor carp, you know, wall to wall carpeting. I would, you know, I would I would put all of the perfect like storage in and you know hang all my pictures and it's like I can't move until I get that stuff done. So I definitely think that the design is deep rooted inside of me. I always knew I didn't I, I wasn't right for being a designer. I don't think I'm that talented, um, but but being able to work in design has been um, tremendous and being able to apply my best talents to helping design move forward is a real gift in my career. I think.
0: Amazing. Uh, what did you end up going to school for? For stu- what did you study at school?
1: Renaissance literature obviously so, <laughs> has lots to do with what I do today. Um, I know, and it, it seems, and it still seems like a kind of funky uh, choice. But I will say that the one thing that I find as a manager and now as a leader of an organization is that the one thing that you can't teach past a certain age is how to be a good writer. So. Yeah. I'm very glad to have that foundation Um, and feel like I got really lucky stepping into a kind of white space uh, when green design was on the rise that really allowed me to almost overnight carve out a a position as like the world's, you know, one of the world's most renowned experts on the topic of green schools because there were like 10 of us, you know, And so I think if I were arriving at USGBC today with the credentials that I had, they probably wouldn't even give me an interview. But it really is all about timing. And for me, the the topic of green design was so central to what I cared about and what I was passionate about. I built up the resume around me to be able to enter into the field. I actually started in interior design and you run ICFF. And that was one of my most important and formative experiences on the road, of, um, uh, the road to IWBI today. Uh, my first trip to ICFF like totally blew my mind, oh, and I, I just that. got so into the different materials and um, just thinking about uh, product innovation and the intersection of that with sustainability. And then the second conference that I went to for this interior design firm I was working at was Green Build in Denver. And then, then the rest is really history. I like threw my bags down in the first session on green schools, called my parents, left a message on the answering machine and said, you can stop panicking. I know what I want to do with the rest of my life and that English degree <laughs> that we're all wondering how I'll put good use to.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. So when did you... So was your first job out of school then that interior design job? No, I
1: I wandered a bunch um, and I, I all through. Um, college, and in fact, a good chunk of my high school career, I was a private tutor. Um, I taught religious school on the weekends and um, figure skating. I ran community figure skating programs. So I had kind of like cobbled together this um, you know, collection of jobs right after school and because most of the stuff on the weekdays was tutoring school age children i could sleep in as long as i want i did like nine kickboxing classes a week and i was making what i thought at the time was a lot of money you know like 50 dollars an hour or something like that and i didn't roll into work until like 2:30 p.m. so i thought that i had it made but meanwhile my parents are sending me books like how to overcome your quarter life crisis and what to do when you don't know what to do. Um, and so, you know, it, it began uh, a kind of wandering path for me of really trying to sense into um, what sat at the intersection of what I was really good at and what I was really passionate about. And I'm really grateful that I had that opportunity to guess and check. Like I did a little, Stint in journalism, and um, I worked on some curriculum development projects. And um, I, I just hit it off with a woman who ran an interior design and architecture firm in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And within a few weeks, I went from being an intern to being her design director. So what was supposed to be a couple of months in between um, cross country moves ended up being over a year of immersive experience in design that. You know, again, when I look back, all these disparate experiences at the time, I didn't understand how much they would serve me, how much that knowledge, how much those skills would serve me in, in, in a career that I certainly couldn't see the trajectory of back then.
0: Right. And when was it that green design really hit you? Was it at green build or had there been inklings before that?
1: Yeah, well, it was one of my responsibilities at the interior um, design firm to really build out our library of sustainable materials. And in Albuquerque, that instinct is literally native, as in, you know, when you look at the architecture, um, or s- having spent a lot of time um, on the Pueblos growing up, um, you know, you see that reverence um, and that harmony that exists between the environment and um, you know, the, the, the natural environment and the physical environment, you know, the, the, um, the adobe, the, the, the stucco, you can barely tell where a man-made form ends and a natural form begins. And so I felt like doing that work in, in New Mexico, that was a place where there was already a kind of elevated consciousness Mm -hmm. around green materials, um, that's really embedded in the culture of that state, but also just in the Native American community that has so much influence and so much bearing, particularly from a design perspective. So um, I I was really mostly looking into materials. And at that point, it was the wild, wild west. You know, right. you're like literally Googling or calling up, you know, the, the, the folks who do the carved particle board to ask them about their VOC content. And you get a guy, you know, in West Virginia who goes, I don't know what you are talking about. Like, and like (laughs) hangs up the phone on you, you know? So those were the early days. And then, yes, I, I, um, the, the owner and I got this notice that said last chance to register for green build in Denver. And I had never even heard of USGBC before. Somehow we had ended up on a mailing list. We probably went to a, A local event with one of the chapters and so we packed up her husband's pickup truck full of bricks because that's what you do when you have to drive through a blizzard on the front range Uh, and on a whim you know we went we we showed up at this conference and the first session that we went to was the opening plenary where rick fedrizi who now is the ceo of my organization iwbi but at that time was the ceo of usgbc also one of the founders he was giving his plenary, and he was talking about green schools. And you know, he is the um, husband of a of of at the time a school teacher, now retired school teacher, um, and the father of two children. It was his deepest passion, and I just found that commitment by USGBC to be to absolutely speak to every fabric of 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 my being. So I did. I ran to that first session, and then I kind of creatively stalked the woman who was running the schools development project for Lead, and she eventually confessed to me like the fourth time I accidentally ran into her in one of the largest convention centers in the country uh, that she was going (laughs) to grad school. So I was like, cool, like, what do I need to do to get your job? And she told me that USGBC really wanted someone who had experience working in a green building program inside of the school district. At that time, that was like a unicorn. Yeah. But it turned out that that school district my mother taught in for several decades, the same one that I was educated in K through 12 was one of those school districts. So I ended up packing up my car, not full of bricks, but now this time full of my life possessions about a month after Greenbuild, And I drove cross country back to the DC area where I was born and raised. Um, In about two and a half days, I moved back in with my parents, which I said I would never do. Uh, And I spent the next six months building up a resume that USGBC really couldn't resist. And so um, by the time I applied for the job, the story goes something like I finished my interview and the hiring manager went sprinting down the hallway to his boss to say, I found her. I found her. Um, But it took about six six, six months and a lot of nail biting to, to get there because I knew there was no other job in the world that I could imagine that I wanted more than that one. So. I feel like I got really lucky there.
0: That's amazing. And did you what did you do? What were the jobs that you did to build your resume? Was it going back to the schools and working? there? Well, the,
1: Yeah, I mean, I took that unpaid internship at the school district within their facilities and construction office. And my first assignment there was to edit lead um and green building requirements into their design specs, which is about 3,000 pages long. Oh. And so <laughs> I thought to myself, well, if I just slog my way through this as fast as I can, whatever's coming next will be much more interesting. <laughs> so I worked days, nights, and weekends and finished um, that first project in record time. That was really an immersive experience too, right? Because you're just like in the guts of every single detail that a school district thinks about when it comes to construction, you know, all the specifications. And then the next job I got was the assignment was much more interesting. I was working with one of the um, school district's first lead facilities to um, get the students trained up on leading tours and do some digital promotions around the the online tour and things like that. And then a uh, a couple of months into that, one uh, a woman who um, to this day is a kind of mentor to me, a German architect named Anya Caldwell, who was running um, the green building program for Montgomery County Schools, turned to me and said, I really love you, but you need to move out of your parents' place and you need to get a paying job. You know, it was such this like act of generosity. And she helped me to apply to a green building consulting job and get this. My first assignment was as a consultant to USGBC, writing the Lead for Schools curriculum for the upcoming workshops. Oh, wow. Um, and so I remember one day I went to USGBC to drop off like a CD ROM of stuff, right? Like that's really dating <laughs> uh, the story. And um, I know I've embellished this in my mind, but in my mind, like the elevator doors part. And like, there's this cool music playing and there's these young, beautiful people like collaborating in the hallway. And I thought, I have to be at this place. Um, And so the woman who uh, had told me she was going off to grad school and relinquishing her position running the school's program, she and I had become friends along the way. She had gone off to work at a grad school, I mean, to to attend grad school. And um, I called her and said, Like, what do I do? I really, really want this job. And she said, Rachel, they already have all six copies of your resumes the ones that you've been updating and dropping off like every few weeks. So just call them. They're waiting for you. (laughs) So I guess we needed each other.
0: No, I love the persistence. I love the persistence. Uh, So you were at USGBC for nearly a decade. Talk a little bit about your role and how it evolved and your experience there. Yeah.
1: It started out um, in a market development role. Like I, my job was to convince school districts and colleges and universities to pursue LEED certification or to work on, um, on advocacy related initiatives to get it adopted through state and local policies. Um, and then one day, Rick, ever the serial entrepreneur walked into my office and said, gutter, we're going to start a center for green schools and you're going to run it. And it was Friday, and he said, I want a business plan by Monday. Uh, and it turned out that, that my boss, the hiring manager who ran, had run down the hallway, was on vacation. By the time he got back, we had basically already made our plans to start up this Center for Green Schools. So I got to do the amazing work of founding that center and building up a team um, where we were leveraging schools as a way at USGBC to open up more hearts and minds by having a conversation about healthy, high-performing kids as opposed to healthy, high-performing buildings. And so we used schools as the platform for advocacy, for volunteerism, um, you know, for our um, activation efforts at the chapter level. Uh, You know, we didn't start the Congressional Green Building Caucus. We started the Congressional Green Schools Caucus. You know, we we didn't start the 50 for 50 Green Building Initiative. We started the 50 for 50 Green School Caucus Initiative. So Um, it really became a a vehicle for us in many ways to humanize the conversation around green building. and then, along the way, I also picked up other responsibilities like leading education for grown ups <laughs> for professionals. Uh, and that was where I got probably the coolest title that I'll ever have for the rest of my life, which was Senior Vice President of Knowledge which I still feel unworthy of to this day. <laughs> um, that was really fun too, because it gave me the opportunity to build a bespoke education platform from the ground up. Um, and that's another one of those things I look back on and go, thank God I did that when I did, because now I know how to do these things that I have to do today. So exactly. um, yeah, it was nice. Both of my bosses, um, Rick and um, Mahesh Ramanajam, who's now the CEO of USGBC, they, they come from Fortune 15 companies, and they really believe in executive rotation. So the idea was at any day, someone could walk into your office, and sure enough, Mahesh walked in one day and said, I need to know by the end of the day if you want to run education. Uh, and so that's, you know, that was sort of the excitement of working at USGBC was we were growing so fast. There were always so many things that needed additional support and leadership, and I got a chance to step into a lot of those.
0: Uh, so many questions off of that. But what was it like early on with lead, I mean, and getting people to adapt. I mean, was it, it must've been a challenge at first and then almost inspiring to see it take off as it did. Can you talk a little bit about I mean, that? What
1: it was, so it's really interesting. We've been thinking a lot back on those early days um, at USGBC, specifically 2006, 2007, when the economy crashed and the bottom really fell out of the real estate market. And you know, even with a tremendous slowing of design and construction across the board, it was USGBC's time of biggest growth. Right. It was the time when we saw the greatest successes because it became such an important differentiator for you know a, a market where opportunities were really, really scarce. And so we see that actually there are some parallels to the situation that we're finding ourselves in right now, and just this tremendous uptick in interest that's born out of crisis and that's born out of need. So, I mean, was it hard? Yeah. I mean, it was hard. I don't think I've ever worked harder in my life except probably right now. Um, But it was so gratifying. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, it was, I call um, sometimes lead the tickle me Elmo of sustainability. Like nobody quite knows why it got so popular so quickly. Um, Even the people who created it. So You know, for us, like we didn't create lead to be mandated, but all of a sudden we had dozens of state related policies and, you know, hundreds of local policies that 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 emerged on top of it. I remember when we were um, starting our advocacy work on the Hill, we were working with some, um, you know, with with a firm, with a with a lobbying firm. And um, every time we would leave a meeting with a member of Congress, they would turn to me and say, you know, meetings never go that well. And after we had like the fourth or fifth meeting, they finally stopped saying it. I think we realized that we were on to something that really resonated with people by way of the triple bottom line of people, planet, and prosperity, you know, and we got really good at having a conversation that didn't demand altruism around environmental and green building commitments, but just said, can we intellectually agree that profit is good? You know, that the health of people is good. Um, and, that allowed us to really make some headway because we were filtering the value proposition through the lens of business and through the lens of of the imperatives that the people on the other end were having to answer to.
0: Right, so it made sense financially, but also environmentally. And so when you put those two together, it's very powerful, um, which no one had done yeah. before. <laughs> so, um, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, of course, like we all stand on the shoulders of giants, but LEED was definitely, um, a new way of tapping into the market's desire to not only lead, but also um, the motivators of comparison and competition. People want a plaque, people want a score, people want to say that they're better than the five other people who are trying to do the same thing. And at the end of the day, that is what I believe fundamentally drove the uptake of lead. And I think is also fundamentally driving the uptake of wealth.
0: Yes. I remember back then when everyone was trying to study for their lead AP exam. And I mean, it was it it is intense and the amount mm-hmm. of knowledge that you had to have and, you know, the studying that went through it. But it it, it was a it was a badge of, of honor, right, that they got it, that they understood that they had a deeper meaning to what buildings could do and could be. And, I th- you know, it was it was really, really yeah. powerful and still is. Um, I,
1: I think it also gave people a deeper meaning around their career. Yep. And that was a big part of what drew those couple hundred thousand people to become lead APs was that, you know, they were more passionate about mm-hmm. the projects that they were working on. Um, I remember one recovering architect who came to work at the Center for Green Schools who said, no one tells you when you go to architecture school that when you graduate, you're going to be designing like strip malls and and schools that are based on the, f- the same floor plates as as, as uh, jails, you know, and so I think that lead became a, a a mechanism that you could have conversations with your clients around. And instead of saying, "Do you want red lockers or blue lockers?" you know, you could talk about, "Do you want to prioritize indoor air quality or energy efficiency to put money back in the classrooms?" And yep. and so it, it 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 was a vocabulary that allowed for a much more dimensional and meaningful conversation with the client. And of course, much more meaningful
0: outcomes. Right. And it was a mind shifter, right? Like it just changed it how people looked at things. Uh, you, you mentioned that you're glad that you did a lot of this. So you know how to do it today. What specifically from your time at USGBC's GBC and working at, with the schools uh, were some of your greatest lessons, some of your greatest takeaways that help you today?
1: Well, I, 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 I'll I tell you first a little bit about what I learned, and then I'll talk a little bit about the challenges that I was frustrated we could never quite solve for that right. we're now putting through a new lens trying to solve for it at, at IWBI. So I think what I learned more than anything at USGBC was the art of market transformation and the careful dance that exists as a push-pull, what the market is willing to do, Um, you know, what the market can take on, and then what's too much too fast. Um, And that really is that that's the that's the art of the work that we do. And so alongside that, in operating the Center for Green Schools, I was really learning the fundamentals of how to move movements forward. And I learned so many lessons along the way, like the importance of partnering, as opposed to lobbying, you know, we tried to identify who are the superpowers of education in the case of green schools. But those superpowers also amount to the protectors of the status quo, if you can't get them on your side early. And what we learned was that the way to get them on your side was to make them themselves champions of the issue, Mm -hmm. was not to petition them, but instead to position them as the thought leaders, to position them as the owners of that movement. So we worked with the national PTA, the school boards associations, the teachers unions, you know, collectively they represented more than 10 million members, um, but we put them out in front, you know, we made that their issue. Um, We also learned a lot about the importance of not preaching to the choir, but instead deploying the choir in a movement like green building, you know, you you kind of figure out eventually that you're talking to a lot of the same people and most of those people already are bought into exactly what you're saying. So the question is, how do you go outside of that? And, you know, one way to do that, I think, was was to deploy the choir. It was to take all those people we were talking to and say, go create your own green school committees, go run your own green apple days of service, Um, you know, get out there and start converting, especially with schools. It's such a localized conversation. Um, But we also, you know, learned along the way that um, uh, that the. Um, the resources that we were creating really had to be highly targeted for the many different stakeholders that were a part of the conversation. So, you know, lots of different lessons along the way about how to architect a movement and how to grow it and expand it. Now, in my work at IWBI, I'm really focused on trying to solve three, I think, fundamental challenges that uh, collectively as a sustainability movement we, 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 we face right now. One is to meet the needs of existing buildings. Um, The vast majority of uptake in green buildings has been through new construction, and that leaves the majority of real estate off the table. Um, And so figuring out how to address existing buildings and the way that they make change and matching your certification and market transformation vehicles to those realities is really, really important and something I think we haven't gotten quite right yet. Um, The second uh, thing that I think we... Um, struggled with in green building and, you know, continue to um, be challenged by is how do we provide tools that scale to the modern organization and specifically some of the largest, most complex organizations in the world that aren't thinking about making change one building at a time. Instead, they're thinking about making change across their entire portfolio, one policy, one program, one sweeping series of retrofits. And I think that, you know, all. A lot of the early positioning of lead and the early positioning of WELL was really about that one-off building approach. So what do you do to adapt to be able to provide organizations with incremental milestones and achievements? Because, you know, if you work for a Fortune 500 company, it can take you five years to get a single policy passed. And mm-hmm. we wanted to find ways to acknowledge that. And then finally, and I think this one is probably more important than ever and goes back to that COVID-19 silver lining. How do we shift public awareness and consumer demand? At the end of the day, we will not go mainstream with healthy buildings or green buildings. If mom isn't demanding it for her kids, you know if, um, that if, if the consumer isn't aware of how to make better choices, you know if potential and prospective renters aren't showing up and asking the right questions. Um, and it turns out that's something that's really hard to, to, to shift. But it goes back to that notion of partnering as opposed to lobbying. And, you know, when we work with our customers, we treat them like partners um, and offer them up a platform, but also try and take advantage of their platform because Lord knows their marketing budgets are bigger than mine.
0: So I think this is a great time to talk a little bit about how did you get to IWBI and why did you want to make this shift over to IWBI? And then for those that might not know, can you explain a little bit about... I mean, you just touched on a lot of the points, but what is well and, Mm -hmm. you know, how is it evolving what you had started um, at USGBC?
1: Definitely. Well, I didn't make the choice to go to IWBI. My mentors made it for me. So it was another one of those executive rotation moments where Rick and Mahesh had already discussed my future. And they collectively approached me to say, Rick is um, leaving USGBC and going to take the CEO position at IWBI, and we would like you to join him. So that made it pretty easy because I had envisioned that I would be working under Mahesh to support him uh, at USGBC. But since he and Rick co-conspired, uh, it, it made the choice really, really a simple one. And um, I trust both of them, you know, deeply uh, in th- helping me to think through my own future. So it almost took the choice out of it. Um, And so I started at IWBI about three and a half years ago around the same time that uh, Rick did um, and a handful of other USGBC family members who came over to help get IWBI and WELL off the ground. Um, When we came into IWBI, WELL was um, a certification for buildings um, to really shore up health and well-being across a number of different concepts at the time, seven different concepts or, or categories. Today, well, is a, still a vehicle for building certification, um, but also it can be applied to communities and to whole organizations um, that are seeking to implement, validate, and measure features that support and advance human health and, and well being. Um, so, we've launched a well community system um, shortly after I, I started, that was in development when I came on board. We re um, architected Well version two. To really make it um, flexible and adaptable to, to all of these needs, um, and so that uh, version, well, version two is in pilot right now. It was supposed to be out of pilot, ex- but for COVID nineteen, um, we decided to hit pause and really do a scan for other ways we could fortify the system in the fight against the virus. Um, and then more recently, we launched the Well Portfolio Program, um, which really is about meeting the needs of existing buildings and um, uh, the you know large complex organizations. That's a program that looks at organization wide commitments and allows for more of that incremental approach over time. So the goal may not be certification ever. The goal may simply be to increase that portfolio score. So as opposed to the one off building approach where you're you sign up you're going to get well silver well gold well platinum well portfolio is much more of a journey than a destination. Which I think really speaks to the way organizations need to be approaching their commitments to health and well-being as COVID-19 has taught us, it's not static.
0: What are the pillars of the well-building standard? What are people scored upon or what are the, the things that they have to take into consideration?
1: So I mentioned that there were seven concepts in well version one. In well version two, there's actually 10. So Um, Those range from air uh, and water and light and thermal comfort and materials health and sound, but also address nourishment, um, community connectivity, mental health and well-being um, and physical activity and movement. So we've really tried to identify all of the different ways in which our spaces, um, but also our organizations can have an impact on our health and well-being. And then within each of those concepts, we have what are called features. And features are basically prescriptions. You know, they say, if you do this, then you'll get this point as a result. Um, And those features range from design-related features to operations and maintenance-related features to um, organizational policies and protocols that really would largely sit more on the HR side of the house, Um, And what we did in Well version two was we moved away from the green building tradition of a static and fixed scorecard. We created a menu of options and we let people build their own scorecard. It's like a choose your own adventure. And that gives project teams the ability to say, well, we're doing a new build and we have a lot more control over the design of this space, but we don't have a whole lot to say. Maybe there isn't even a team assembled who's going to be running HR, you know, for the new school in the district, to keep on my school's example. Um, And so um, we've introduced a lot of flexibility into the system. Nonetheless, in order to achieve a WELL certification, you have to select features across all 10 of those concepts. So you have to have a really holistic approach to a WELL certified project.
0: I love that it takes well-being, as you just said, to a holistic approach, that it's more than just the built environment, but how people act and live and play and work within the environment, because that's such a, so important, especially, you know, in today's world.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, we we stand on the shoulders of giants with USGBC and with LEED, and one of the places where we really saw that things could fall apart on the ground, you know, the notion of a a green building or a healthy building only being as green or as healthy as the people who are interacting inside of it. And so, um, you know, we made a really important choice in Well Version 2 not to separate out that which the building can do from that which the organization can do. They have to be coupled, you know. One has to go with the other. It's all well and good to have a meditation and contemplation room in your space, but if you've got a work culture discourages people from taking breaks throughout the day, that room is going to go unused. You know, you can br- build a beautiful kitchen and you can provide lots of, you know, gorgeous, healthy food for everyone. But if the office culture is about cupcakes and pizza, you know, or um, if you're not addressing education around that, if you're not encouraging people to take time away from their desk to eat communally, all of those amazing design features end up going to waste. So I think part of the magic of well is that it It prompts that integrative design process at the beginning. And it says, we know you might not control that, but you really do influence that. And you should exercise that influence from the very outset of the project.
0: Got it. Um, and recently you formed an IWBI task force. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about and wh- what you're hoping that task force does? So
1: we were on the eve of our Governance Council vote to bring Well Version 2 out of pilot after about two years of piloting that new system. It was the very same day that we had announced to staff that we were closing down our New York headquarters and sending everybody to remote work environments because of the spread of the virus. And it was the day after we had made the very difficult and devastating decision to postpone the well conference that was scheduled um, for uh, March and April in Scottsdale. So all of that is happening. And I pull our chief engineer, Nathan, aside and say, Nathan, I've been thinking, I feel like I know the team has worked so hard. They've been sprinting for the last couple of months to ready um, the system for this vote. But I feel like we have a moral obligation to press pause um, because we already knew, especially through our colleagues in China, who were living the the reality of COVID nineteen and fast forward two months ahead of us. Basically, we already knew that Well was a system that performed very well and, and in service to the fight against COVID nineteen. We've got features for hand washing and for cleaning protocols and for air quality. Um, you know, so many things that we know to, to be material um, in addressing uh, safer spaces with the presence of the virus. But we also felt that we could do more. So we made a game time decision to pause the vote. And we made an announcement that we were standing up this task force. We lined up some iconic co-chairs like Risa Levisa-More, who's also on the Governance Council. She's the former head of Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, mm-hmm. one of the largest fu- um, public one of the largest funders of public health in the world now at uh, University of Pennsylvania, uh, Dr. Richard Carmona, who um, I should have mentioned also, Risa is a doctor. <laughs> Dr. Richard Carmona, um, who is also, um, uh, who was the 17th uh, Surgeon General of the United States. Um, when Yu, also a doctor, um, who um, is now the um, Distinguished Professor at the Center for Healthy Cities um, in, in um at Tsinghua University, but also the uh, former director of the China um, Center for Disease Control and Prevention, um, and on and on. I mean, the, the the co-chairs that we lined up were unbelievable. And then we thought maybe we'll get a couple dozen really good additional folks who will raise their hand to be members of the task force. And instead, we got almost 500. And they range from virologists and um, scientists um, across many, many different fields um, to medical practitioners Um, to architects, designers, engineers, um, acousticians, lighting designers, um, you know, elected and appointed officials, you know, and city representatives, um, the heads of sustainability and wellness for some of the largest companies in the world, institutions of higher education, um, airports, you know, folks who are running projects at airports and, and in hospitality. The diversity knocked our socks off. We very quickly built a bespoke online platform that would allow all of these folks to be in dialogue with one another 24-7 because the people who joined represent over 30 countries. Wow. So how do you, in 30 days, suck all of the wisdom that they have to offer across all of those subjects? So we were able to find a technology solution and couple that with some live town hall meetings to do a rapid exercise of collecting just a ton of feedback. And right now, um, our standard development team and their advisors um, are in the process of digesting all of that and figuring out where can enhancements be made to the standard and also um, working on new guidance for um, prevention and preparedness, resilience and recovery that will exist as a standalone piece of guidance that we'll publish and make freely available um, to, to anyone who's interested
0: were you surprised by this by this overwhelming response and now that you yeah. have all these people that want to help that want to give feedback yeah. what else are you hoping to do with, with with these resources so first of all i the the
1: level of participation and engagement from the task force just Blows my mind. I just feel so incredibly grateful, and I think it really does cut to the heart of our collective desire to be participating in solving these enormous challenges presented by COVID nineteen. You know, I think we we all are feeling a call to somehow be a part of the solution, to be a part of giving back, and there's just so much need across the board. So I'm eternally grateful for the folks who showed up to the plate of the task force. Um, I mentioned two of the goals of the task force to fortify well as a system um, in the fight against COVID-19 and to create a standalone set of guidelines for um, prevention, preparedness, resilience, and recovery. Uh, Beyond that, there are a number of new resources and programs and offerings that have in large part been inspired by the task force. Um, Just recently, we announced that we'll be Launching a health safety rating um, that will focus on facilities operations and management. Um, We're also working on a number of resources to address um, education and re onboarding of uh, employees and staff. I think this is a real missing piece. You know, it's great to have a policy on wearing PPE. It's even better if you can provide those supplies, you know, high quality supplies to your staff. But if you don't teach them how to wear them, you know, if you don't teach them about, you know, how to keep them clean, then, you know, you're going to see what I've been seeing walking around my neighborhood and listening to the news where, you know, uh, there's a senior um, living facility uh, right down the street from me. And every time I walk by, there's, you know, a bunch of people wearing a mask dangling from one ear and smoking a cigarette. You know, it's like that's not really what we were going for here, but (laughs) but the the lack of education is the barrier there. So, um, one of the needs that's really become illuminated um, is the importance of of providing that education and providing it in ways that are appropriate. You know, that are going to meet the audience. Um, where they are, including sometimes, you know, at or below a fifth grade reading level to mm-hmm. make sure that we're, you know, and, and 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 to people who speak English as a second language, you know, like this is such an area of need. We've tried to sense into what we can do that is um, complementary and not duplicative, because there are so many organizations that, of course, have activated around COVID-19. And in particular, you're seeing Um, a huge number of really great resources around re-entry, you know, uh, lots of property management firms, um, lots of uh, real estate and construction firms have all published those pieces of guidance. We really felt like our position was to think about the white spaces around those pieces of guidance where things might really suffer in the way of implementation um, and verification and validation. So those are some of the Um, ways that we've come up with so far. We also just recently launched an advisory for um, arenas and uh, stadiums and other venues like that, because we know that um, everybody wants to get back to sports, everybody wants to get back to concerts, you know, the kinds of things that hold our social fabric together. But we also know that places that convene large groups of people for extended periods of time have a lot of challenges and a lot of risk, um, and so we're also trying to um, be available and be in service to uh, the sectors that are most hard hit and the ones that have um, a really uh, particular set of of, of um, challenges that have to be thought through. You know, for instance, one thing we'll touch upon with the new advisory is ticketless entry touchless security screenings, you know, these are the types of things that thus far haven't been addressed in well. So we're going through another rapid 30-day exercise to develop new parts and new features in well, um, specifically for stadiums, arenas, and other places of large gathering. And you should be interested to know... I, I thought about telling you this offline, but I'll just tell you sh- while, we're, while we're on the record that Perfect. I think the next advisory that will stand up will probably be related to hospitality. And we'd love to, not to put you on the spot, but we'd love to have you participate.
0: Oh, I would love to. That would be amazing. Thank you. Uh, yes, I was just going to ask, you know, hospitality has been one of the hardest hit. And as people open or reopen, I guess I should say, there's a lot of unknowns, right? No one really knows That's how right. to do it right. Um, you know, people are throwing cleaning ideas, you know, down and, you know, uh, plexiglass partitions. And, you know, it takes a lot of what hospitality is away. And so I think it's, you know, a very fine line to reopen and still have that experience, that welcome, that, um, that, that embodies hospitality. What do you think hospitality needs to do, um, or be focusing on right now, in your opinion? And um, what can it do to, what can the hospitality industry do to restore the public's confidence and feeling safe in these environments?
1: Mm. Well, you used a really important word, which is confidence. And I think that we have to acknowledge that there's a delta between perception and reality. And especially in a place like hospitality, you have to cater to both, right? It's not just about whether the space is safe, but it's also about whether you feel safe. And those two things will matter because matter a lot, especially um, in a place like hospitality, given the way that people make selections about, for instance, where they're going to stay or where they're going to host an event. Um, of course, at IWBI, we are strong believers in the importance of third party verification that a system like WELL or like LEAD is able to offer Um we also um, one thing that really differentiates well that we haven't talked about yet is that it's a performance verified system. That means that you don't get your final certification until you've actually demonstrated that your water quality is 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 excellent that your air quality um, is, is is good um, you know that you you go through visual inspection checks that have to do with lighting and um, you know, the the satisfaction of other requirements in well, um, it looks at, you know, acoustics and so forth. So um, it's not about design intentions, it's about actual outcomes. And I think this is a place where we really do have to be focused on, on, you know, real outcomes, um, and a validation process that that puts that stamp or that seal on that does provide that sense of confidence. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm anticipating that you're gonna see a real uptick in hospitality of um spaces and whole organizations that are really starting to more deeply commit to these third-party certification frameworks. Um and, and that I think is another really good thing because hospitality has been one of the slowest sectors um to embrace, for instance, the notion of green. And I'll I'll tell you my own personal example of that. Um I lived in a hotel for the first three years that I was at IWBI. Um, I, I, you know, was straddling time between DC, where I have a home, um, and New York, where IWBI is headquartered. And so, for three to four days a week, uh, I would be, um, uh, I I would, I would be living at the hotel. And um, it took me about twenty-two hotels to find my way to the Nomad. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm like the worst guest you could imagine because my list of requirements is like, I want hardwood floors, high performing HVAC system, quality acoustics, you know, green cleaning. Like I, I'm a monster guest from that perspective in terms of my expectations and in New York, but also mostly across the, the the country and the world, it's really hard to find, you know, that list of what I consider to be almost bare minimums for for my own health and, and well-being, I, you know, um, I'll immediately start to get congested most of the time if I walk into, you know, a room with with, with carpet because of all of the, the particulates. So from a health perspective, it was important to me. Um, and I had stayed at the Nomad um, for over a year um before i was one day um hanging out with the bellman one of the bellmen and he said what do you do for a living so i said what i usually said i said well have you ever heard of lead and he said oh yeah our hotel is lead certified and i was like what how could i not know this like where is the plaque where is the information in your marketing materials it would have been would have been so much easier to find you and he said we don't advertise it because we don't think that our it's what our guests are interested in in fact we think that they'll be worried. Actually, I'm I'm embellishing the story. By this time, <laughs> I had taken my questions from the bellman to the general manager, <laughs> and what the general manager said to me. Although the bellmen are very well informed at the Nomad, um, but what the general manager said to me was that they don't think that's what their guests want. That that a green, you know, mark um, might mean that you'd be short shrifted out of clean towels or sheets, you know, or that you would, you know, take a shower with bad water pressure. Um, And so I think that's, you know, goes back to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, consumer awareness and and demand um, that, you know, we've got to kind of redefine uh, what these things mean in the mind of the public. And we've got to shift that notion that sustainability is about um, what you give up as opposed to what you gain, you know, that it's not about scarcity, but instead about abundance. Um, That's one of the cool transitions that I think we're trying to help to make uh, with with well wholesale. But I'm really optimistic that in this moment, hospitality will embrace it as the next frontier. Um, and again, it goes back to, you know, that notion, it, it doesn't have to be altruistic either. You know, it doesn't have to be about doing doing the right thing. It can be about doing the right thing to get back to business. And right now, more than anything, hospitality uh, needs to be putting measures into place um, that will provide that level of confidence and assurance that are going to, you know, get people to feel comfortable making reservations, you know, and, and showing back, showing up again.
0: Yes, I totally agree. And I think, as you said, the silver lining of COVID-19 is that it's allowing people to realize the importance of this on a different level. Um, And I think Wellness, I mean, it was already having its moment, right? It was growing. It was, you know, numbers were astonishing. $4.3 trillion industry. It was, you know, invading every aspect of living, which I think was great. I mean, we at HD actually switched our March-April issue from the luxury issue to the wellness issue uh, two years ago when this started to take off. And we're seeing all these new concepts and just design infiltrating every aspect of wellness from, you know... Uh, from a vet to the dentist's office to, you know, these new wellness clubs. And it was exciting for us to see uh, something that we thought should have been more of a priority for a very long time, as if I can speak for my entire team. But um, why do you think it was becoming so important before COVID, right? Like this pre-COVID, why do you think it was Mm -hmm. having its moment? Why do you think, you know, and what do you think of all the new various wellness concepts that are coming online? Um, I think that, so we consider at
1: IWBI, we consider the work that we do to be a part of the second wave of sustainability, which is to say that we still very much consider ourselves to be an organization with a mission to advance sustainability, but we're doing that through, um... A a, a a common framework and a universal imperative, you know, that we all ourselves want to be healthy. Yep. We want our families to be well. We want our businesses to be growing. We want our communities to be thriving, you know? And so um, in thinking about that triple bottom line, it simply shifts the center of gravity to talk more about the health of people. When what we know is that the health of people and the health of the planet at scale—they're one and the same. Exactly, um, they're inextricably linked. So, what our you know what our our buildings exhale, the people on the street inhale. You know what our cars exhaust. You know we breathe in. Um, and and you know COVID nineteen also teaches us that planetary health and 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 human health are positively inseparable. Um, and so, I think that a big part of what has motivated um, the rise in wellness writ large, but particularly in real estate and in the built environment, um, are a series of studies that have allowed us to um, really touch the whole holy grail of, of, of green building and be able to demonstrate that um, the things that the measures that we've been taking to improve the health of the planet are actually improving our, our, our cognition, our productivity, our problem solving our mood, our focus, that body of evidence has been growing um, for decades. That's exactly the body of evidence that undergirds every one of the features in well. But there were a handful of studies that have happened over the past, say, I don't know, five to seven years, like the COG-FX study um, out of Harvard School of Public Health, which is now, I believe, in its third phase. Um, That was a double-blind study that um, was able to determine that um, uh, air quality had a direct impact on productivity and, and and performance. So studies like that, and being able to actually demonstrate um, the human benefits of sustainability has really moved this forward. Um, and then I think you also just have a couple of generations of younger individuals who are not just obsessed with their own health and well-being, but believe it's the obligation of their employer to provide for it. Right. So another major trend Or or, you know that that has evolved are like these you know overly um, amenitized is that a word like these like (laughs) we can make it (laughs) you know uh, fancy schmancy like you know bling bling offices that was really came out of Silicon Valley yeah you know where like in order to attract the best talent and in order to keep them in the office for as many hours a day they've got you know scooters and rock climbing walls and uh massage chairs and all of a sudden the you know the millennial that was being recruited as the top talent at the time goes well I don't want to work at your office you don't have any of that stuff are you going to give me unlimited delicious food in the dining hall for no money you know and so uh, what's interesting is that a lot of a lot of those early amenities were really just like fluff you know they didn't go after Um, performance improvements, for instance, you want good performance, you don't feed people junk food, you feed people good whole food, you know, Um, or if you really want to help people um, keep their bodies in shape, um, encouraging people to take movement breaks throughout the day and giving them ways to do that a campus that allows for that, um, especially outside where you'll get the benefits of being outside is, is a lot more effective than a massage chair. But what it did was it reconditioned the mind of, of, of the millennial and what they expected in a great job. It was no longer enough to have a solid paycheck and healthcare benefits. They wanted it all. And that in turn put pressure, not just on other firms in Silicon Valley, but like all the way to like the most droll law firm in Washington, D.C. Yeah, Um, Because they were all competing for that same talent, the war on talent. And so I think we actually have that generation of top talent and the organizations that responded to it to thank for a lot of, wellness movement right now, because what started to happen was those very same organizations started to apply a filter on top of their choices for amenities and benefits that really started to take a much more um, uh, science driven approach to the kinds of things that you could do that would actually improve upon your business's bottom line. So if you're, you know, putting measures into place that um, provide for fewer sick days, um, that, you know, Uh, that have, um, that are improving, you know, productivity, collaboration, mood, each one of these things tracks to a business's bottom line. And it turns out that's a value proposition. That's, that's a pretty easy sell.
0: Exactly, and it all makes sense, right? And it's been interesting. We've even at HD been able to cover offices now that have hospitality like amenities because you know it it is all about the experience now at work, at home.
1: Well, and you've seen that in hospitality too, right? Like you know the the in the in room workouts and the gym clothes that you can rent. Which God, I hope they've done away with that (laughs) in the land of COVID nineteen. You know, but just like the the yoga mat, you know, upon request, and the. And the on demand yoga on your screen. And like you've really seen that shift of wellness based amenities and hospitality too.
0: Yeah. And I mean, in full hotels based on wellness, you know, Six Senses and, um, mm-hmm. you know, and Equinox opening up in Hudson Yards and now growing across the country. I mean, just the fact yeah. that wellness should be and is a priority is it, it's exciting. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's, it, it's now going, as we said, going to be more important than ever. And I don't think you can talk about wellness without sustainability. So I think that's where, you know, the well, um, the the well standard will be, and is super important. And I think just, you know, it just excites me so much that this is now, you know, a holistic approach to what well being should be. Me too. I mean, the other,
1: the last trend that's kind of worth mentioning is that the, the real rise of of wellness, particularly on the consumer side is often born of crisis. Um, And we've got plenty of examples pre COVID to um, point to um, in particular in, in China, which is um, uh, by square feet, our largest market for well. um, One of the uh, most popular sectors that utilizes well is multifamily residential housing. Uh Why? Because in China, when you have a baby in a city in the winter you're told don't bring that kid outside for three months because the particulate matter, the pollution, is so bad that you could actually harm your child. Um, and so the the typical you know consumer, the typical parent, is highly highly aware of the um, the dependency that they have on their homes to keep them healthy and well, um, specifically from an air quality perspective. So, it in in China, when a new building that's pursuing well certification opens up to take applications, there'll be a block, there'll be a line around the block Yep. for like, a, I mean, and China style. So like a line a mile around <laughs> the block. Um, and and so I think, you know, we're seeing that same thing happen here more directly as a result of, of, of COVID-19 that, you know, people are really starting to make that connection at the consumer level, not like at the builder level, not at the owner level, but at the consumer level to say there is a relationship between the things that happen inside of my home and my ability to keep my family healthy and safe.
0: And it just is so exciting what you guys are doing. Um, And I feel like we could talk forever, but um, I want to end this with the one question that we end all of the podcasts with um, because it's the title of the podcast, what I've learned. What do you think in all your desperate experiences has been your greatest lesson or your biggest lesson learned um, over the years?
1: It's really hard to put my finger on one, although if I had to, um, I would I would mention what I mentioned earlier, which is that there's just so much inner wisdom that you can find when you shoot for the intersection of what you're passionate about and what you're really great at. Yep. And similar to the, trip, the, the triple bottom line, if you shoot for the intersections of those two things, you probably won't go wrong. Um, and another thing that I, I learned along the way in my journey is the importance of wandering. And um, how impossible it is to understand how the sum total of your experiences will amount to something really terrific if you just keep following your best instincts. And to be honest, following your heart. One of the things that I love about millennials is that they they almost feel entitled to love their jobs. But I find that really refreshing. Yeah. We talked about my parents at the beginning of this interview. And I remember my father saying to me, it just never occurred to me to pursue a job that I would love. I always thought of a job as just something that I would do to you know, pay the bills, take care of my family, and then I would live on the weekends. I would live in the spaces in between. And I don't think that that uh, is the only way to do it. I mean, I understand there's a certain amount of luxury and even just being able to think expansively about your own career and what you do. But I do believe that if we continue to find the intersection of purpose and profit in our own lives, that we would be much happier as professionals, much happier as individuals, and that um, ultimately, uh, you know, the, the, the planet and society as a whole will be greatly benefited as well.
0: So well said. Well, thank you, Rachel, so much for taking this time um, with me and us today. It was always very inspiring and um, educational. So I really appreciate it and can't wait to see what comes out of the task force and what comes next for well. And again, I'm happy to join the hospitality one. So just let me know when. On um, <laughs> the spot acceptance. We yes. Love it. <laughs> yes. Um, but as I said, I'm a big fan of all that you're doing. Um, and uh, can't wait to see what's next. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. This was really fun.
0: Awesome. Well, we'll uh, hopefully talk soon or see each other in real life soon. I'll pray for the latter for sure. Yeah, exactly. This episode of Hospitality Design's What I've Learned podcast was brought to you by Global Allies. You can learn more about the company at globalallies.com. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find full episodes and transcripts at hospitalitydesign.com.